today, Pastor is going to be talking about David. How many of you have heard about David in the Bible? Well, there was a time when David sinned, okay? And after he sinned, he wrote a psalm. And in that psalm, he, he, he shares how that sin has become a great burden on him. You know, sin has an effect that it, it, it weighs you down. Sin is a burden that, that can weigh us down. And, and I wanted to demonstrate how, how sin can be a burden. Because maybe, 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 you know, maybe you understand, but I think some of the adults maybe don't understand. So I want to show you how sin can, can weigh you down, how it can be a burden on your life, okay? And so I've got a whole bunch of stuff with me today, and I'm going to need some help. So who, who can hold on the microphone for me? All right, come on over here. I'm going to need you to hold on the microphone for me while I, I put some stuff on me, okay? So, hold the mic. Come on closer. Hi, Arlo. What I want to do is I'm just going to demonstrate that, you know, when I put a whole bunch of stuff on me, it's going to be kind of hard for me to walk. It's going to be hard for me to run. So, give me a minute here. It'll be fun. going to weigh me down. This is all this stuff and all these bags and all these 
It's going to take away your joy. It's going to take away your peace. It's going to destroy your destiny. Sin is going to ruin your life. But you know what? Thank God for the cross. Because you know what the Bible says? That Jesus took the burden of this world. Jesus has taken our sin. And so I'm going to sing this song for you. And while I sing the song, I'm going to take this all to the cross. There's a song that says, He has taken the weight of the world upon his shoulders. I know, my brother, that he will carry you. Therefore, you know, I don't have to carry this burden anymore. All I have to do is I have to come to the cross. And I can leave it at the cross here. I don't have to carry it anymore. I don't have to live with sin in my life anymore. I don't have to live knowing that and, and allow sin to take my joy away. Because you know what? The price has been pay paid. Jesus, when he died on that cross, you know what he did? With each nail, he, he crucified my sins. He crucified. He took upon the cross that which was supposed to be on my shoulders. He took it and he nailed it to the cross. And I no longer have to carry that weight of the sin. You know, as, as pastor preaches today about David who was burdened by sin. You know what David did? He went to God and he said, God... This sin is so heavy. God, I, I've sinned before you. God, I need forgiveness because I can no longer carry this weight upon my shoulders. And you know what? And God washed him. God cleansed him. God took away his sin. God took the sin away from David and he restored David. And that's why David was a great man of God. Because, you know, all of us sin. Can we, can we say all sin? We have all sinned. All of us have this burden. How many of you have disobeyed, have never disobeyed your mother? <laughs> all right, we do have a couple perfect angels here, I know. <laughs> we always have angels amongst us. But we've all sinned. Listen, and every time you sin, it's like, a, it's like a, another pair of pants put upon you that makes it hard for you to walk. But the blood of Jesus washes us from every sin. The blood of Jesus cleanses away all our sins, all our transgressions. Therefore, we can be weight free. We can be burden free and walk in the joy of the Lord. Amen? That's all for, for my lesson for today. And next week, we're going to see you in iChurch. That's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you talk. You just get ready. Whole week, get ready about it. Pray about it. Get excited about it because next week is iChurch and it's going to be amazing. Amen. Pastor. Well, we are.
are blessed, are we not? Wow. Thank you, Russell. Go ahead and take the rest of that stuff off, by the way. <laughs> I'm, warm, I'm warm watching him, aren't you? <laughs> While he's doing that, let's, uh, let's raise our Bibles. If you have them with you, I'm a child of God. I have in my hand the powerful Word of God. It can change lives, heal broken hearts, take the weight of sin off our shoulders, and save mankind. So here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. I give a high five, pound your neighbor there, make them feel welcome, loved. If you haven't hugged your neighbor, why don't you take a minute and do that? Would you hug them? Even if you have hugged them, hug them again. It'd be all right. Very good. We, all, we, we, need, we need more hugs than we need pushes, don't we? All right. Again, I've got uh, notes, uh, encouragement cards back there. If, uh, if the sermon's starting to wane on you, just grab a card, all right? Start to write me a letter of encouragement. <laughs> I remember the story I told you some time ago where the preacher was preaching and having a real difficult time, at least in the eyes of, of one of the parishioners who was listening, and she pulled out a white handkerchief and began to wave it. He just thought, man, that's a rally thing. I'm really going now. Boy, I got her attention. Well, at, at the end of church as she was leaving, she, he said, uh, he said, Sister, I just uh, saw that uh, you were waving the the handkerchief, uh, and I just took that as a rallying cry. She said, no, 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 you were struggling. I was saying, help him, Lord, help him, help him, Lord, help him. So you pray for me today as we share together. Uh, the final message in the series, God is closer than you think. We've talked about he's closer than you think when you get a raw deal out of Psalm 73. He's closer than you think in times of crisis in Psalm 23. He's closer than you think when you feel like a nobody going nowhere out of Psalm 139. He's closer than you think when you are troubled and depressed out of Psalm 77. We talked about that last week. And then today I want to talk to you about he's closer than you think when he's blown it big time. We're going to look in 2 Samuel 12. We're also going to be in Psalm 51. All of you have a little white slip of paper. Hang on to that. Going to, going to get back to it at the end of the service. Just, just hang on to it. So when I call for it, it, it'll be right there. The New York Times reported something unusual that happened at 112 West 44th Street in Manhattan. Two women, Laura Barnett and Sandra Spannon, dressed in white, pleaded people to unburden their souls. Mrs. Barnett would silently flag the attention of someone who was passing by and point them to words which had been stenciled on the glass, air your dirty laundry, 100% confidential, anonymous, free. She would extend a clipboard with a blank sheet of paper and an envelope stamped with the word secret to any who would come and take it. Hundreds took that clipboard. Executives, street people, couriers, secretaries, shoppers, joggers, they would all pause to write down their sins and their secrets, seal it in the envelope, and hand it back to Laura Barnett. Meanwhile, Mrs. Spannon would quietly paint the portraits of those who stopped to divulge those inner secrets. 
Once the person is well out of sight, the envelope was opened and the message taped to the glass for all to see. And those portraits were posted as well. And those who came, came by, to, uh, they would read the confessions of strangers before they would add their own. Some of them are silly. Some of them are terrible. For instance, the hermit crab was still alive when I threw it down the trash at school. Another said, I want to see SUVs explode. Those people are selfish. Another one wrote, as the day progressed and, 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 and as that empty glass on that storefront began to fill up with these confessions, this one appeared. I am, a dating, I am dating a married man and getting financial compensation in exchange for the guilt. I'm 25, and he's a millionaire. On another slip, it just simply said, I have AIDS. Now, the little storefront experiment revealed many things, but there's an inescapable fact that surfaced across all generations, income levels, social standings, and that was that a lot of people are hiding. A lot of people are hiding. They're hiding from police, from parents. They're hiding from coaches, from teachers. They're hiding things from bosses and others are hiding things from spouses. Many people today are hiding from God. Did the statistics blow your mind that Russell had for us to look at today? The first average age of the first pornographic experience. You remember what age it was? The average age of teenage pregnancy in America is 11 and 12. Are you ready for this, folks? Pull your head out of the sand. Pull your head out of the sand. I hope that today that you might catch the fact that I might be talking directly to you. Because still quietly, all is well on the outside, yet the words that I'm speaking are opening closets within your life. Some of us may be hiding something desperately shameful in our past. An abortion, a shady deal, the thing you stole, the adult theater you visited, the impure thoughts that are taking on more strength and are threatening to be played out. No one knows about the scheming, the lying, or the cheating. Your cover hasn't been blown yet. You haven't been caught, but you know it's there. And my friend, so does God. There once was a man who blew it big time. He was a ancient, an ancient king, super rich, incredibly powerful. He was a smart leader. He was wise and godly as they come. You know him as David. And in a weak moment, King David of Israel was basically channel surfing on the palace of his roof, if you would. One hot spring night, and he saw a woman named Bathsheba taking a bath. And just like pornography draws people in today, David was drawn in. In Job 31.1, Job wisely penned, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then can I look lustfully upon a young maiden? Maybe maybe some of us need to make that same covenant 
But David was not thinking about God or purity at that moment. He foolishly lingered and he foolishly, dangerously looked. What he imagined, he demanded. He sent for her and he committed adultery with her. And even though he knew her husband was one of his loyal soldiers on the military mission on behalf of David's kingdom, David received a message a little while later. The message said, I'm pregnant, sign B. <laughs> David immediately set to work hiding. He tried to cover the sin by bringing her husband Uriah home from the front lines. And he thought, if I could just get him to sleep with her, and everybody will think it's his, his baby. Here we go. Well, he was very loyal to David. He was a tremendous soldier. David even went so far as to get him drunk, hoping that would cause him to go, and he fell asleep at the door, uh, at, at the door of his house. He would not go in and sleep with his wife because his, his, his fellow soldiers, his compadres, his companions, they, they were still fighting on the front. So David devised the part of the story, Plan B, and desperate was his maneuver. He was going to have Uriah murdered placed on the front line and murdered while the troops pulled back. Uriah would receive a hero's funeral. David would look sympathetic in the eyes of the people as he then married that grieving widow. No one, no one would question David's actions. No one would pry into his business. He got away with it. He could say, well, that was a close call, but hallelujah, I'm still I'm still the king of Israel. Well, some months later, a prophet named Nathan came to visit him. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, uh, I would encourage you to jump over there with me. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, we pick up at verse 1. Nathan talks to King David, and he says, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. I'm in 2 Samuel 12, and I'm at verse 1. The rich man had a large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one small ewe lamb that he had bought. It lived and grew up with him and his children. It shared his meager food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had, who had come to him. Instead... He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. It was at this time that David exploded, our story tells us. As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. And in one of the most stunning moments in Scripture, Nathan the prophet looks at King David and he says... You are that man. He reminded this shepherd-made king of God's incredible blessings. Nathan openly states to David what he had so carefully concealed. Let's keep reading. Why then have you despised the command of the Lord by doing what I considered evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with an Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them publicly. 
publicly. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. Now what happened next? What happened next happens, well, really doesn't happen in the chambers of kings and presidents. In those chambers, you see plausible deniability. You see displacement of blame. You see attacking the critics or some other tactic common, commonly used in the methods used to pass blame when we're caught. But David did none of that. In verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, it records what the king said. In a moment of brokenness, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan responds, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Did David deserve to die? He had sex with another man's wife. He lied. He betrayed. He murdered. David himself answers after Nathan's story, As the Lord lives, the Lord, uh, the man who has done this deserves to die. I mean, that's heart-wrenching. Those are consequences that follow such actions, striking not only David, but also Bathsheba, but innocent people as well who knew nothing of David's sin. And this slice out of David's life teaches us some very important things. And the number one thing I want you to, if you take nothing from this message, take this, the best of us fail. The best of us fail. Like David, we all have something that we deeply regret, are ashamed of, are embarrassed about, an event that has, has, has truly changed us. Maybe you're wondering in a moment like this, how can I ever recover? How can I erase the guilt? How do I find courage and strength to deal with the consequences? Has God written me off? Well, I want to take you to the rest of the story. Because David's example is here to remind us that we're all caught red-handed. No matter how well we camouflage our sin, he will also show us in our text in Psalm 51 what happens after we blow it. So if you would, turn to Psalm 51. And you will see what was written after Nathan confronted David with his sin. Like the people in Manhattan, David writes out his private confession. But unlike those confessions offered to the, by the people of New York, David offers his to God. And I want you to get this part. In this confessional prayer, he gives us five steps towards spiritual recovery. Because you see, God is closer than you think, even when you've blown it big time. Step number one is take responsibility for your sin. In verses 1 through 5, we, we find these words. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was uh, sinful in my mother when my mother conceived me. Now, David doesn't fall. And I want you to notice this. He doesn't fall into that self-justifying trap of shifting the blame. He doesn't say, the devil made me do it. 
He doesn't say, I was just having a bad day. He just points to, uh, to Bathsheba for bathing on her rooftop. He doesn't necessarily point to her uh, and, and start to accuse her. If she didn't bathe out there naked, I wouldn't have fallen. Of course, the Bible says, if your right eye offend thee, right? So had he covered his right eye, he would still be sinless. Amen. Yeah. But isn't that how we think? Because we've got to justify this sin we've gotten ourselves involved in. David could have twisted and perverted, but he didn't. Look at verse 5. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David believed in that he, like every human being, is bent to sin. We have an innate string or thread running through us that causes us to think of sin. It's called the flesh. And we struggle with it. Am I the only one? We struggle with that flesh, don't we? You bet we do. And it manifests itself in different ways for different people. But it all is under the same heading. <laughs> but he doesn't blame her. He doesn't, he doesn't look at his mother and say, well, if I had a better mom, well, my parents were this way. My heritage is this way. He owns his own choices. He doesn't try to cut a deal. He doesn't try to negotiate with God. He simply comes clean with no conditions. In fact, he closes verse 4 by acknowledging to God that you're right. And you're right, God, when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. And you see that first step toward breaking free from the past and renewing your walk with God is that you take ownership of your sin. You cannot move forward in your walk with God unless you do that. Because the second step is also found in those first four verses, and it's strictly, as I said, come clean. Come clean. Don't rationalize. Don't minimize. Don't excuse. Don't spin it. Get real. Get on your knees and call out to God and tell Him, I blew it, and here's how I blew it. What happens if we don't do that? What happens if you stuff it down and you don't respond to it and you don't release it? You lock it away? You pretend it doesn't happen? In Psalm 32, verses 2 and 4, David writes, How happy is the man the Lord does not charge with sin, and in those and whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. He goes on to say, I was a desert, I was all torn up, I was depressed, ached as though dying inside. The weight of my sin was killing me. Steve Arterburn is a Christian psychologist and pastor, and he writes that there are only... There are really only three reasons why we don't do this first step, and that is get real, come clean before God. First step, he says, is because you're afraid of losing your reputation. Secondly, it's because you're afraid of losing your favorite sin. And then thirdly, it's because you're afraid that it might cost you financially, emotionally, and relationally. I don't know which excuse will keep you in your seat later when we call for honest confession. 
But if you're counting the cost of staying silent properly, you'll follow David's example. Step three, ask for and receive God's forgiveness. Tucked away in those first four verses, David's confession, as we have read it, he says, Be gracious to me, O God. Blot out my rebellion. Wash away my guilt. Cleanse me from my sin. David cries out for mercy. He's appealing to God willingly. He asks to be those sins to be erased and that they be washed and cleansed, and he cries out to God for his work in him to be done. He wants what only God can accomplish, total forgiveness. Pick up with me at verse 6. David says, Surely you desire integrity in the inner, inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sins. Blot out my guilt. Hyssop was a little herb that the Jews used to dip blood in and do ritual cleansing. Sin cannot be forgiven without the shedding of blood. Right here, centuries before the cross, we find a veiled reference to Christ being crucified. God, an innocent, must shed blood for you to forgive me. I don't understand all that means, but make me clean, whiter than new snow. And that brings us to step number four, and that is to request a fresh work of God's grace. We're going to be looking at verses 10 through 12, so find that. David is now clean before the Lord. He's appealed to the Lord. He's taken responsibility. He's called out to God. David wants to sense again, to sense again that renewal, that restoration that only God can bring. This time the prayer is for gladness and freedom to be experienced when you're burning up time and energy covering sin. Look at what he says in these verses. All joy is gone, he says. Restore to me that double joy upon joy. He seems to be a million miles away. God does. But once renewed, David pleads for God to flood him with joy and restore that eager obedience that once marked his life. And don't really get tripped up on verse 11 in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit did not permanently indwell believers because that happened starting in chapter 2, the book of Acts. But he came upon people for specific purposes. And so David is saying, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Let me sense your presence with me. Now the beautiful part for you and me is that we don't only sense him, he lives in us. <laughs> he lives in us. You're walking down the street and you get that prompting on one shoulder that says, don't be going over there. I'm standing at Golden Corral at the front door. And the Holy Spirit is banging on my head. Says, Don't go in there. And this one on this side is going, what is he talking about? You're only going to have meat. Meat is fine. Protein. You're not going to have mashed potatoes and gravy. You're not going to go to the dessert bar. You're just going to have steak, all the steak you can eat on all the steak you can eat nights. So the Holy Spirit's going, don't go in there. And this one's going, it's going to be fine. I'm very trembling. 
I reached for the door. Now, the sin hadn't happened yet, has it? When's the sin going to happen? When I open that door. Glory to God. Because when you open the door, what happens? So very dutifully, I go over to the, where that guy's cooking that steak. I say, I want just, and I have my blinders on. I say, I want that steak. And all of a sudden, this blinder goes, hello. And out of the corner of my eye, I see that white gravy. And I see that mashed potatoes. And I start to wander. And when I've wandered, my eye, this one goes off. Because the dessert bar goes, hello, preacher, glad you're here. <laughs> this little girl walks by with an with a ice cream bowl r- swirl thing, you know. It's this high. And it's got candy on it. And it's got chocolate on it. And syrup on it. And I'm looking at her and I'm saying, get by me, Satan, get away. Right? No, I say, where'd you get that? Glory to God. And then all the blinders are off. And, oh, mercy. You got me? That's why I can't go there. What's yours? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You don't have any. Oh, I knew that. I, I, what was I thinking? You don't have any of those struggles in your life. But you see, today, we can pray with David. Father, I want to fellowship with you again. I want to change, I want you to change me, I want you to renew me, I want you to transform me, make me willing again. Spiritual recovery requires you to come clean to take responsibility for that sin, to ask and receive God's forgiveness, to pray for his presence and power to once more flow through your life. And that brings us to the last step, step number five. Restore and resolve to use the past failure for future ministry. Look at verse 13 through 15. (coughs) Then I will teach the rebellious your ways, and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, the God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You want to be demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit moving in you? the fact that you love Jesus unconditionally with all of your heart, then you are going to bring people to Christ. And you're going to sing praises through that mouth. Amen. For some, it's better to have the windows up when you're singing those praises. I got you. But sing them nevertheless. Amen. Go into that sound booth at Mardell's and let her rip, Tater Chip. Boy, go after it. Put the headphones on. I've heard some. I've walked by. I've listened to it. I was going, whoo, keep them headphones on. Keep that door shut. Glory to God. And they're the ones that are trying out for American Idol. <laughs> Man, somebody lied to some of these young people about it. Well, you can sing now. You need to go try out. No, they don't. Keep that talent hidden under that bush. Glory to God. You with me? You understand? But you see, God has a better way. God can take the scars and he can heal. Honest confession taking responsibility for your choices, asking for God's forgiveness, asking Him to pour Himself through you in a fresh new way, getting back into ministry again. Oh, folks, that's great news today. But see, you may be here today, 
and you're in that secret place. You may be here today and you just haven't been found out yet. Well, I'm going to give you a chance to come clean before God. You've all gotten a little white sh slip of paper that I had passed out. If you have the courage and have the desire, I want you to take that piece of paper. I want you to put your name on it. But I just want you to write down that secret sin that you know that you need to give to God. That secret sin that keeps nagging you and hounding you and, and pressuring you and frustrating you and you keep giving in and falling down to it. If you would have the courage to do that and to write that down while we're singing this invitation song, I would have you fold it and just come lay it at the foot of the cross. Russell has such a great visual of what that means. To take the weight of the world, this is your one sin that you keep struggling with that you need to give to God. And today, draw your line in the sand and make it happen. This is your day. You take it and drop it. If you want to get on your knees somewhere and pray after you drop it, that's hallelujah. This is your time song we've been singing all month, I Surrender. What a powerful testimony. We're not going to stand. I want you to sit. I want, this, I want the song to hit you. Sing the song with me. If you've got a prayer, you've got that, that one thing you want to turn loose to God today, write it on your paper, fold it up, come drop it at the cross. Get in.